We are going to finish up our series this week, My Life Under Construction, My Life Under Construction. This has just been a series about those things in our life that feel ruined, that God is rebuilding. We've been using the book of Nehemiah to, to kind of look as a roadmap uh, for what it looks like when God resurrects or rebuilds something that seems impossible to to rebuild and, and through, through a man named Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah, we've been able to, to learn about this. And we've started each week uh, the same way in this series by just kind of owning and accepting the fact that God is working on us, that our lives are under renovation. And sometimes that can get a little messy, right? Some, we're not where we wanna be, God's still working on us. So why don't you just turn to the person you're sitting beside right now and just tell them, say, pardon the mess. Pardon the mess, I'm under renovation. Just tell them, pardon the mess, I'm under renovation because God is doing something and it can get messy sometimes. I shared a story a couple of weeks ago about Howard Schultz, the, the CEO and the kind of the mastermind behind the Starbucks franchise and uh, had a chance to read some about him and listen to some incredible interviews and shared a little bit about his story, but there was a part that I, that I left out that I felt like is so fitting for where we want to wrap up today. In 1981, uh, Howard Schultz was trying to raise $3.8 million to, to purchase the existing Starbucks franchise. At the time, it was, it was successful, but it was only three stores, and they did not sell drinks. They just sold coffee beans uh, to people making coffee. So um, Howard Schultz had worked there, and then uh, after he couldn't convince the owner to make it more of a drink franchise than a bean franchise, he started his own thing and then had a chance to buy Starbucks for $3.8 million. Now, he didn't have any personal money. He was very broke, as a matter of fact. And so he had to raise all $3.8 million. He had to come up with 100% financing for this investment and he would meet with these investors, these, these, these business investors, and he would share with them his business plan. And his business plan consisted of changing uh, Starbucks from, from just being about the beans to being uh, about the drink. And as a part of that, that business plan that he presented to each of these investors, written on that sheet of paper was his dream that there could one day, if everything worked out correctly, that there could one day be a hundred Starbucks locations. There'd be a hundred Starbucks locations. And so after meeting with several investors and it not going as well as he would hope, he felt very discouraged and he felt like that he was dreaming too big. And so he wanted to redo his business plan but he was so broke that he did not have enough money to reprint the business plans. So he grabbed his business plans, took a Sharpie marker, and scratched out 100 stores on all of the business plans and wrote in 75, 75 stores. He just felt like that maybe his dream for 100 Starbucks locations was too big. So maybe 75. To this day, depending on if one opened yesterday, there are 21,366 stores, including locations in Asia, Europe, North and South 
America. How many people are glad Starbucks has a little more than 75 stores? Any Starbucks aholics in here? I actually hang out at the Starbucks in Shepherdsville all the time now and work. I just don't order coffee. I just take up their Wi-Fi. But um, glad for Starbucks. But when Schultz is asked, whenever he's interviewed or, or you hear his story, whenever he's asked if he ever imagined that Starbucks would be as successful as it is, every time he, he just laughs. Because he says he remembers not having enough money to print those new business plans when he believed that he had dreamed excessively. I love that. I love that phrase. That he had believed that he had dreamed too excessively. So for this last week in this series, I want to I look at Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, verses 15 and 16. Just want to read two of these verses together. This is, this is not the end of the book of Nehemiah, but it is where we're going to end this series. And this is what it says in Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. It says, so on October the 2nd, Nehemiah's writing, these are his memoirs. So on October the 2nd, the wall was finished. We've been talking about this is the whole project, building this wall, rebuilding the wall. Just 52 days after we had begun. That's pretty incredible. If you think about it, I want you to think about movies you've seen, maybe, you know, Troy or Lord of the Rings or whatever it is where you see these cities with these barrier walls. And here's a man, Nehemiah, who rallied the people and in just 52 days were able to, to rebuild them. Verse 16, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. I just want to end this last, this last week in my life under construction talking about the tension or the frustration that we feel when it doesn't feel like progress is being made as fast as we wish that it was. You know, when I read chapter 6, verse 15, and it says that it only took 52 days, I celebrate with Nehemiah, but there's also a part of me that is a little bit frustrated because I think about my own life and the things that God is doing in me and the, the dreams that I have for my life, the dreams that we have for this church, the dreams that I have for my family, and if I'm just being honest with you, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I'm just being honest. I don't feel like God has really ever answered any of my prayers or brought any of my dreams to reality in, in 52 days. It seems like what God is doing in me and the, the rebuilding and the renovation that he's doing in my life, it seems like that it takes so much longer than I want it and wish that it would take. And it seems like that it is so much harder than I thought that it would be or wish that it would be. Now, I'm not a handyman. Some of you know this. Uh, I'm not a handyman. I'm not a, a project guy. Uh, I, can, I raise the money for the projects. That's, my, that's the role that I play. And then somebody plays their part and does the building part. But here's what I know about me, and I'm not talking spiritually here, I'm talking real life. Here's what I know about me, I don't know if you're this way. I always underestimate how long a project will take, every single time, every single time. It's like, oh yeah, you know, we want to, uh, we want to let's start small. We want to hang some pictures up on the, in the living room, <laughs> knock that out in 30 minutes. So like two hours later and like 47 bullet holes later in the wall, it's taking longer. 
but the bigger the project, the more I underestimate, hey, we need to put a new toilet in the bathroom. Hey, we're going to help our buddy redo his deck. Hey, we're going to, you know, whatever it is, like I'm always, I'll be like, oh, we'll, we'll knock that out in two or three hours, or that'll take a day, or my father-in-law and I put uh, uh, concrete brick slabs down and a gazebo in the backyard, and he showed up on Friday, and I thought we'd be done by Friday afternoon, and we weren't done on Monday, and it was like <laughs> constantly underestimating how long a project will take and how hard a project will take. Any, any guys in the room, anybody, not just guys, anybody relate to that? Usually underestimating how long it will take and how hard that it will be. Hey, uh, we just got this new toy for the kids. Assembly required. No problem. <laughs> Can knock that out. Looks, look, I look at the picture on the box. There's like eight pieces. I got that. Never works. And spiritually speaking, so many of us have felt that frustration as well. That we get inspired, we get a dream, we get a vision. We, we, God injects us with hope about the future and, and what it is he's going to do, what it is he's rebuilding in our lives. And I would be willing to bet, like me, like so many of us, when we get inspired and we get that dream or that vision or that hope that things are going to be different and be rebuilt and changed, almost everyone in the room underestimates how long it will take and underestimates how hard it will be, how hard it will be. Maybe, maybe you're here today and throughout this series we've been talking and, and you have felt this hope, this inspiration that God is going to rebuild your marriage, that he is going to heal the marriage, reconcile the relationship, that it is going to come back together. And, and, and the moment of inspiration and hope and dreaming and believing again, you think, man, we could probably knock this out by the end of the year. And, and we underestimate that it may take years for God to do everything that he's wanting to do in the relationship. Maybe you find yourself in a financial situation of debt, a hole of debt, and it took 15 years to dig the hole. And I love that we serve a God who tends to miraculously speed things up more than the real time that it took to get in there. But still, we're thinking, we get inspired, we read a book, we hear a sermon, we, and we think, man, I can knock this out in a couple of months when the reality is it may take 36 months or 60 months. And it's going to take us constantly renewing ourselves and recommitting ourselves to what it is that God has put into our, our heart, a career, a dream, a relationship where you're forgiving someone and you think, well, you know what? We'll just forgive each other and everything will be fine again. And it's like, no, it, it's harder than that and it always takes longer than that. Maybe it's personal health. Is there anything more frustrating than thinking you're losing weight quickly? <laughs> you are not. Um, it's, just, it's just, it's harder and it takes longer. And so here's what I want to do for just the, the, the last few moments today. I want to jump out of Nehemiah. I want to go over to the book of Genesis. I want to show you something uh, that, I've, that I've read so many times, but really just stood out to me a few weeks ago that I feel like is the perfect closing for this series. Genesis chapter 13 Genesis chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 15. I want to talk about a man named Abraham. We've talked about Abraham a lot around here, but I want to talk about Abraham and his son Isaac and, and his, son, his son Jacob. In Genesis 13, verse 15, God is talking to Abraham, and this is what he says to Abraham. Abraham is, 
It's kind of out in the field one day. And God says to Abraham, I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And then look at this promise that God makes to Abraham. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction for I'm giving it to you. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, and he reminds him four or five or, you know, 10 different times, I am going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you more descendants than, than you can count, like the stars in the sky. He keeps renewing and, and, and telling Abraham this promise. Abraham, don't you worry, because I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to do it, Abraham. I'm going to do it. Now, here's what's interesting about Abraham is he married a woman who could not have children. So I want you to just kind of understand the tension that Abraham is dealing with and wrestling with in his life. God is telling Abraham and giving Abraham this promise that through you, I am going to birth a nation, many descendants, so many you can't count them. Abraham is hearing and feeling the promise of God for what is going to be built in his life. And every time he looks at his wife, he's thinking about the promise of God, but he's also thinking about the reality his wife can't have children. How is God going to birth a nation from a woman who can't have children? Maybe you felt that tension before when God is speaking to you and giving you a dream or giving you a vision about your life or are or, or you feeling this hope that something is going to rebuild? But when you, when you look at the reality of where you are and what you're facing, you're thinking, I just don't see how it's possible. Miraculously, the way that God does, he shows up one day when Sarah, Abraham's wife, is 99 years old, and Abraham is 100, and Sarah throws the pregnancy test at him at his 100th birthday party. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, getting the, the baby shower uh, invitation in the mail? For like the, the mom, you know, like the women's club, like all your friends' kids are now in their 50s and they want to invite you to Sarah's baby shower. And so here's God doing what God does and Abraham is able to have children. He actually has two children, one out of disobedience and one from God, but they both count. And so, and so when Abraham dies... He has two children, and he sends one the way. So really, the only one around the dinner table, he has one child. So I just want to stop for a second because I want to rush past this, that God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have more descendants than you can count. And when Abraham is laying on his deathbed, he does a head count, and he sees one. We'll give him the other one. We'll give him Ishmael. So we'll give him, we'll give him two. He does a head count after living 175 years, knowing and believing the promises of God that he's going to be a great nation and have many descendants. And he's dying. He's breathing his last breath. And he's like, God, I know you said descendants. One, two. That's not a great nation. That is the American average. And so here's this promise. 
you felt this, what Abraham has felt. But, 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 I, but, but Abraham's son, his name is, is Isaac. And in Genesis 25, verse 19, it says, this is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. And, uh, and Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because, look at this, she was unable to have children. So just wrap your mind around this. I'm sure Isaac was told over and over again by his father, let me tell you what God said he was going to do. Let me tell you the promise God gave me. Let me tell you that like, God is going to make this family so large and so great. And there's going to be so many descendants, we can't even count them. And I know that there's only you and your brother right now, but God promised and it's going to happen. And so Isaac's probably so pumped and he falls in love with a woman who cannot have children. You say, how is God going to bring about that promise? How is God going to, to, to build a great family and, and, and legacy out of this when she can't have children? You know, it, it, is it just me or does it seem like God never makes it easy? I mean, it would kind of make sense that the Bible says Isaac was 40 years old and he married a woman who was incredibly fertile. He'd be like, yeah, well, because God's got to get this family going, you know? It's like, here we do, you know? It's like, at well, some point, the Duggars have got to come along, and we've got to get 19 or 20 or 24 people out of this family here so that it looks like what God said is going to happen is actually happening. And so, so many of us, we deal with this tension in our life. I'm praying, I'm believing God is rebuilding something, God's doing something in our life. And we're counting heads and we're looking at the balance sheet on paper and we're upstairs when our husband's downstairs and our kids still haven't called us yet. And we look at our bank account and we know where our faith is and we're saying, God, I know what you said. I know what you put in my heart, but it's not happening. It's not happening. God does what God does. And, and so Rachel is able to, uh, or Rebecca, excuse me, is able to have two sons. She has two Esau and Jacob, two. This is not a great nation. This is the American average. Husband, wife, two kids, a dog, a minivan. Like, this is not great. This is average. Esau has some trouble of his own. Jacob kind of becomes the lead in the story. And Jacob marries a woman named Rachel. And guess what is true about Rachel? She can't have children. She can't have children. God gave a promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you into a great nation and every wife, every woman that marries into the family cannot have children. I love that God's promises are not limited by our realities. Isn't that, isn't that great? That what God is speaking to you, birthing in you, saying to you, leading you to believe and to have faith for even though the current reality of where you are makes it seem impossible, I love that we serve a God who is not dictated by our current reality. So through a really crazy story that belongs on a reality show, Jacob ends up with four wives. And, and out of all four wives, he ends up having 12 children. Rachel has the last two. One of those is named Joseph. He's eventually going to become the lead in the story. And, and Jacob and his 12 sons 
obviously grows. And in Exodus 1 verse 5, it says, in all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. So, so watch me now. So Abraham had two, really one, but two. Isaac had two. Jacob had 12 that turns into 70. 70 is not nothing to shake a stick at, don't get me wrong, but it's still not a great nation. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants will be, uh, will be more than you can count, more than the stars in the sky. That's what God said to Abraham. It's gotten better, but it's 70. It's 70. And then 400 years go by, Moses finally shows up to lead the people out of Egypt. And look at what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. That night, the people of Israel, which is really all the descendants of Jacob, okay? That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Succoth. There were about 600,000 men plus all the women and children. I love this. So if we follow this line, we see that Abraham had two. Isaac had two. Jacob had 12. 12 turns into 70. Okay, not bad guy, but not exactly what we thought you told us. And then 400 years go by, and the next time someone does a head count, we are well over probably 1.25 million, if not one and a half million. One and a half million. And so the way I wanted to end this series today is I just wanted to ask you this question. What dream do you have? What hope are you hoping in to be rebuilt in your life? What is it that you're hoping can come together? What is it that God, you're hoping God does for you and God does in you that right now, currently where you are, seems so far away, seems impossible, seems like no way no chance that what I'm feeling, believing, seeing, and dreaming right now is going to happen. You feel embarrassed to even talk about it out loud because it seems that crazy. feels like it could never happen. You're thinking about this reconstruction renovation project, and you're like, Jason, we're not even, we haven't even got started yet. We haven't even got off the ground. You're talking about rebuilding a relationship. We're not even talking. Like, you're talking about getting out of debt. I don't even have a job. You're talking about having a relationship with Jesus. I, I can't even get my act together for 24 hours. You're talking about getting clean from addiction. I haven't been clean from addiction since I was in middle school, Jason. I just don't see how it could be possible we serve a God and we have a God on our side fighting on our behalf who does not move at the speed that we wished he would move at. And he does not make things as easy as we wish he would make them. But he never fails to deliver on his promise that he gives to us or makes to us. Never. He doesn't move at our pace and he doesn't make it as easy as we want him to, but he always delivers exactly what he says he will deliver. And so I want to just give you three statements quickly, just three statements this morning to help us, to encourage us, to help us focus on what matters that we can take away from 
Nehemiah, and we can also take away from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the story of Genesis. First statement is this, is that what God is doing in you will outlive you if you will let it. What God is doing in you will outlive you if you will let it. Sometimes we can get so self-focused and we can get so kind of, this is what I need God to do right now and this needs to happen right now because it's about me and it's about what's happening in me. But I wanna challenge you today to kind of zoom out a little bit and I wanna ask you, do you have a dream that outlives you? Do you have a prayer that outlives you? A multi-generational dream, a multi-generational prayer, a multi-generational project or vision in your life. Like maybe, maybe what would encourage you is to zoom out a little bit and instead of just thinking that God fixing or healing your marriage is about your marriage, realize that maybe it's not just about your marriage. Maybe it's about your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And maybe getting clean from that addiction in your life is not just about you getting clean, but maybe it's about changing your family tree and the, and the baggage and the damage that has weighed down your family for generations. Maybe it's not just about you getting out of debt so people stop calling your phone. Maybe it's about changing the trajectory and the legacy of your family financially. Maybe it's not just about you feeling better about your life because you found Jesus. Maybe it's about the fact that you become the patriarch spiritually of your family and people look back in three and four and five generations and say, it was when my great, great, great grandfather walked into a church on a Sunday morning. And when somebody invited them in, that's when everything began to change. What I'm trying to encourage you with this morning is zoom out a little bit. Like, yeah, you're discouraged. Yeah, you're frustrated. It's not happening like you thought it would happen. But what if instead of saying, God, I need you to do it in the next 30 days, what if you said, God, could you do it in 30 years? God, could you do it in three generations? Man, that's a long project. Man, that's a long time and that's a hard project. But if you will let it, God will let your dream and, and your prayer outlive you? Are you praying any prayers that you will not be around to be able to see God answer? Second comment is this, second thought is this, what God is doing in you is always so much bigger than you. So we're talking about outliving you and, 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 and that's true. But what God was doing for Abraham was not, it was so much bigger than Abraham. And and I believe that what God is doing in you is not just about you getting better, you feeling better. Like it's about God using what he's doing in you to help someone else. It's about you being able to share your story and say, let me tell you how God rebuilt my life when I was uh, completely at rock bottom because I could not stay sober or clean. Let me tell you how God rebuilt my marriage when it was so bad, we would not even look at each other, sleep in the same room, the same bedroom, talk to one another. Let me tell you how God, what God is doing in me and what God has done in me when I screwed up my life so bad financially that I thought it would never get better. But listen, no matter where you are, what you're facing, let me tell you what God did in me because he can do it for you. Sometimes we can get so discouraged and so frustrated about how something's not happening as fast and as easily as we wished it would, but God is doing something in us, not just for us. It's for someone around us 
that he wants us to help, minister to, be around. He wants you to have a story. He wants you to have a testimony. You know, the only way to have a testimony is to have a test. So he wants you to have a testimony. So what God is doing in you is always so much bigger than you. And then last is this, what God is doing in you while you wait is more valuable than the final destination. This is one of those points we don't really like, but it's so true. And what God is doing in you while you wait is more valuable than the final destination. Final destination is going to be great. Great marriage is going to be great. Being clean is going to be great. But the struggle, the fight, the tension, the tears, the frustration with God... The, the, the feeling of failure in our own self, all of the things that are happening inside of us. You think Abraham didn't lay in bed at night beside a woman who couldn't have children and think that he was letting God down somehow? You think Sarah didn't feel guilty? I'm sure she knew about what was happening. All of those things that are happening inside of us, those times when we go to God, we pray to God, we beat the ground, we cry, we say, God, I don't know why you're doing this. Why is this happening? How is this happening? What's going on in me? All of that is coming together to form something beautiful in our lives. We're learning more about God. We're learning more about ourselves. We're building our faith. That's why James said, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds, which makes no sense, except for the fact that we've got to believe that every tough time, everything that we face, everything that we're going through, it's making us who we are, who God wants us to be. And by the time we get to the final destination, we'll be glad we got there, but it won't even really matter at that point. Because God has built us up and, and grown us and matured us. You know, I, the way I know that I have young children in my family and not grown-ups is because every time we get in the car, they ask one question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We live 20 minutes from the church, and every time we turn, take a left out of our neighborhood or right out of our neighborhood, Nora will say, Daddy, are we close to the church yet? No, baby, we're not close yet. We just left the house. It's a sign of immaturity Impatience as a sign of immaturity. And so the way that I'll know they're growing up is when they're not asking, are we there yet all the time? And so maybe sometimes we go to God, and we're like, God, are we there yet? God, are you gonna do it yet? God, is it gonna happen yet? And God's like, I, I'm not as concerned about when we get there as much as I'm concerned about what I'm doing in you while we're headed there. Okay? So, so I want you to be encouraged today as we... As we talk about rebuilding and renovating and what God's doing, the dreams, the prayers he's doing in our lives, I know you're not where you want to be. I know it's not moving as fast as you want it to move. I know it's not going as easy as you want it to be. But here's what I can promise you. is that God is working on your behalf. He's moving and stirring and shaping and nudging and pushing. And it's coming together. It may happen in 10 days, a year, 10 years. It may happen after your lifetime. I don't know, but here's what I know. If you believe that God has given you a promise, God has given you a vision, God has given you a dream, if you know it, if you're saying, That's, I know that God has given me a word, dream, vision, something, I know it. Here's what I can promise you. I cannot tell you when and I cannot tell you how, but I can promise you that God will always deliver every single time. Let's pray.